0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rob Brooks about his new book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers, and Algorithmic Matchmakers. Artificial intimacy offers an innovative perspective on the possibilities of the present and near future. The evolutionary biologist, Rob Brooks, explores the latest research on intimacy and desire to consider the interaction of the new technologies and fundamental human behaviors. Beyond the technology, he asks what the implications of artificial intimacy will be for how we understand ourselves. Well, Rob, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And uh, always great to talk to people about about writing and about the book um, and what I've been doing.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us today. And I would like to ask you to start by maybe reflecting on how the pandemic has influenced you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
1: Absolutely. So um, actually this book was finished. Um, I I submitted the first full draft of it to my publisher on the day that I had to go and start working from home. Um, So in a way it punctuates the the pandemic for me um, in that I suddenly had to not only... Um, you know, find out how to, how to do my job from home, uh, which is as a university lecturer at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Um, but I also had to deal with the sort of, almost the grief process of having intensely finished writing something that I've been concentrating on for a couple of years. Um, but it was actually quite a good time because I suddenly was able to read um, and listen to audiobooks and go for very long runs and, uh, you know, rediscover all sorts of things about my, my neighbourhood and living in my, the lovely part of eastern Sydney where I live. Um, and I, I had, had a very bad attitude about um, reading the books of Yuval Noah Harari uh, because I thought I was going to dislike them for some reason. I, I don't know, something very successful. Sometimes you just go, wow, I'm, I'm not going to like that. Um, but I listened to them as audiobooks while I took some long runs and I was actually blown away by sapiens and I thought it was fantastic and I thought yeah I you know I know why I was concerned about what he was doing because it's a, a sort of this very big picture notion of history um, and of technology and of the relationship between humans and technology but also of just the um, the idea of humans and other animals as algorithms and um, and so that actually allowed me to put a whole nother layer on the book in revision. Um, so the pandemic and the book for me are, are very tightly um, intertwined. Um, and then since then, it, it had been 10 years since I published anything before that, I've been you know, trying to figure out how does one publish a book? Um, how does one get ideas out in the current age in 2021? Um, because it's so different from what it had been like in 2011. There was no such thing as podcasts, as far as I'm aware, in 2011. Mm. Um, and suddenly, you know, that seems to be the thing that you do. Um, and so uh, I've been a little slow to that. So I'm really pleased to have a chance to, um, to talk and to open up about, uh, about the book and about evolution and about my ideas um, as a consequence of that.
0: So you already mentioned that you're a lecturer at university. Can you give us a bit more information about your background?
1: Yes, I was born and I grew up in South Africa, in Johannesburg, South Africa. So that's a, a landlocked city at high altitude. Um, and it was I was born in the very beginning of the 1970s. So my teenage years uh, were spent during the sort of darkest days of um, South African apartheid. Um, and that had a number of implications. Obviously, you know, it's very politically formative. Um, but the the in addition to the sort of the racial politics and the sort of colonialist politics of South Africa, um, which I guess people know quite a bit about, um, it was a very conservative state um, and very religiously oriented, sort of Calvinistic um, in its orientation. And so evolution was banned. You couldn't teach about evolution in public schools. Uh, But the one good thing, or one of the many good things about South Africa at the time was that the universities were very independent and fierce about um, academic freedom and their capacity to, you know, Politically to talk about what was going on in the country at the time and to teach about that. And in addition to the, the contemporary politics that they're very free thinking about, um, the university that I went to was very active in evolution. Um, in part because some of the greatest fossils of human evolution um, occurred around there. Although I went and studied zoology, um, and so I learned mostly about evolution in plants and animals and microbes, etc. And in many ways, it was a bit subversive to study evolution. Many of my colleagues around me were, were, uh, were quite anti evolution, even though they were biology students. Um, but I, when I discovered that at university, I realized that this is, you know, This is for me, this is a series of ideas that are just incredibly potent about how the world came to be um, and about a process-based view of how the world came to be. And so I've, um, ever since then, I've embraced it and looked for ways to um, understand and to resolve through my research, um, evolution and its relation to modern living, um, but also to talk about that with the public. So, you know, um, university was an incredibly happy, informative experience for me. Um, Coming out of having spent the 80s in this very, Afrikaans has this word for corrupt, which I guess you'll probably, you know, get um, anybody who speaks a sort of um, Germanic language will probably understand the notion of that, which is, you know, stultified environment. Um, And then... Between school and university, I went to Canada as an exchange student for a year. You know, we only had telephones and telegrams. There was no internet. We weren't allowed to phone our parents for the first two months. And I spent a year as a 17-year-old living in Canada um, realising just what an odd place I had grown up in, what a strange place, and and that the world wasn't really like that. Um, and so that was also an incredibly formative experience. Um and then the other, the, the, the last important, I think, step that it, it contributes to this is that when I um, had finished doing my PhD in South Africa, I got a job offer to come out for a year to Australia to um, a place called Townsville up in North Queensland. Uh, beautiful tropical place with uh, rainforest and reef and very vibrant biology community. And I studied there. I, I started doing research and realized that I could be paid to do research and to ask new and original questions about the world. And that Australia actually had a really good funding system to support people, including, you know, relatively young people naive people like myself to do original research. And again, I discovered this, this is very much for me, um, the kinds of ways in which people were asking questions using genetics and behavioral experiments were for me. And so that has been, um, you know, a really important um, component of my sort of scientific upbringing, but also my, my, you know, coming to be who i am as as a person um and so yeah that's that's pretty much me i now have um a a family i have two children um I'm separated from their mum and i my partner with whom i live has two children so we have this household that fluctuates between two people and six people depending on what week it is um and we live out um, in Eastern Sydney, right near the near the sea, and are very active at you know getting out and about and uh, getting into nature and especially into the ocean.
0: That's one exciting career journey and uh, life journey you described there. So, I was wondering what roles did your uh, mentors and maybe colleagues as well play along your career journey, and uh, do you have anything to say to your younger listeners?
1: Um, I've had a couple of mentors. They've always been mentoring is a funny thing. I'm I'm a big believer in mentoring, and I mentor a lot of early career researchers, or not even early career researchers. But I think that um, universities are full of mentoring programs where they try to set you up and structure the whole mentoring relationship. But really, that's that's the antithesis of what it should be about. I was lucky enough to pick a couple of people who were just a little bit older and a little bit more experienced than me, um, and they were the most formative mentors for me. So one was a guy called Michael Jennings, who was at university a couple of years ahead of me and actually tutored me in a few of my subjects. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar, and um, so he went off to to Oxford to do his um, DPhil. But before that, he had... He was just a, this research, um, you know, powerhouse, and he, a number of his papers. He came to me with the papers and said, "Hey, I'd like you to read this. I'd like you to look at this." And I thought, "Well, a little old me, you know, a little old undergraduate me, what could I possibly say that would be of interest to this guy who is, you know, the." The, the superstar of our department, um, but he was just incredibly nice and he actually valued the opinions of other people, including me, and so that was one of the first things that made me think, hey, maybe I've got something to offer here. Similarly, when I came to Australia, one of the people who took me under his wing was um, a guy called Mark Blows, who's a very, very good friend of mine as well, and um, and he showed me the way in terms of finding my way through the Australian Research system, um, but also uh, introduced me to the study of quantitative genetics and the statistical basis of inheritance, uh, which was a huge missing part of my education. And so these are people who are a few years ahead of me in the game, uh, a couple of years older than me, but not, you know, they're not super senior figures. And so that's the approach I've, I've tried to take with mentoring is to look out for people at, at all levels. Um, that that I can help, um, but but make sure that it's organic and that it really matters, and that I put other people in touch with each other um, for you know for mentoring experiences because you never quite know who's going to work out as your mentor. Um, for younger uh, listeners, I think it's just really important to realise that not everything about the world is already known. It's something that a lot of scientists um, come to this sort of epiphany that you can make a contribution. You can find out things that nobody's ever known before. Uh, and that's the cool thing about doing science. Um, there's so much that we don't know. There's so much that we um, haven't really figured out yet. And, uh, you know, curiosity and openness and hard work can mean that you can make a real genuine contribution. So I think that's worth bearing in mind too.
0: So your latest book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. Can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it?
1: Oh, absolutely. So it's about what happens when the technologies of right now, um, particularly robotics virtual reality and most important of all artificial intelligence what happens when those technologies encounter um, human nature by human nature I mean our evolved behavioral capacities so you know if if you think of the early days of, of personal computers we told the computers what to do by pushing their buttons by you know switching them on and off and typing on keyboards etc Um, but now what technologies are doing is that they're learning to push our buttons. If you've ever spent, you know, more time than you wanted to playing Candy Crush Saga or some other computer game, you'll know that the computers are very much pushing our buttons. They're tapping into our wish to for rewards. Um, but more than just, you know, the dopamine rush from a, from a game, they're tapping into up, um, the ways in which we make friends and become intimate with them and draw them close to us. They're also tapping into our needs for romance and for sex. And so artificial intimacies, if you pluralize it, are those technologies. And um, the subheading of the book, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers, describe three different categories of artificial intimacy. They're overlapping categories um, that together are shaping our world. And I think that they are going to be the most important technologies in our near future. Uh, Long before artificial intelligence sort of reaches the singularity and smart machines begin designing other smart machines and we sort of, humans become irrelevant, which is one of the big fears of artificial intelligence. Um, Long before that, I think we are going to be um, interacting with machines um, in a way that uh, occupies our time and attention and completely changes the way in which we relate to one another. So that's what artificial intimacy is all about.
0: And how did you get inspired to write it?
1: Ah, yes, good point. So my research area, if I had to pick one theme for my research area throughout my career, it's sexual conflict. Now, sexual conflict is actually... A body of theoretical ideas from evolutionary biology that says that sex is a highly cooperative um, enterprise. What you're doing when you have sex is basically combining half of your genes with genes from another person. So you're you're taking a massive chance on another person, or in, if you're, you know, in animals and plants, etc., you're taking a chance on another individual because you're combining half of everything that you are with uh, someone else, um, rather than making a full copy of yourself. And so that that's where the cooperation comes in. But because it's a really important any kind of important transaction, mentioned buying or selling something at a shop, or any any kind of important interaction is susceptible to cheating and to exploitation etc and so since the 1970s researchers have increasingly realized that you know sex is not about perpetuating the species um it's not about the group it's about the individuals who are involved and this is sexual reproduction is um it, it's in it, 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 inherent to sexual reproduction is a degree of conflict now in humans You know, you can think of all the nasty things that people who are mates or who could become mates or who want, you know, where one of them wants to be a mate, all those nasty things that they can do to each other, Um, and, and those are manifestations of sexual conflict, but so are the small negotiations that we have over, you know, whose turn it is to take out the garbage and all of those sort of gendered issues that we have in relationships, those are also expressions of sexual conflict and so I've spent uh, you know 25 years studying how sexual conflict plays out in small animals like guppies and um, crickets field crickets and uh, flies um, and mice increasingly I've done a lot of work on mice you know males and females influence how long one another live some mates are good to have uh, and some mates are just kind of toxic in a way um for 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 their mates um and there are you know many many different examples of this and i discuss many of them in the book for instance instance just one group the water striders who skate over the tops of ponds Um, you know uh, males will just hop on a female and just sit on top of her waiting for a chance to mate Um, and this costs the female she can drown she can be eaten by a predator sometimes males will bring vibrations that basically is going to bring in a more predatory um, underwater bug that's going to come up and hit them both but he's going to hit the female first because the male's on the female's back so he's making these vibrations to try and blackmail the female into mating with him so these are the kinds of interesting manifestations of sexual conflict in small animals but I've always thought we should really explore this in humans Um, And so when I finished writing my last book 10 years ago, I started writing about it, and I wrote about preeclampsia and gestational diabetes and all these um, diseases of pregnancy that arise because of um, conflict between the the genes of the mother and the father as the embryo develops. I wrote about um, abortion, and increasingly, I got into the ideological battles over sex that, and, and over gender and over what the roles of women and men are and over, you know, um, sexuality, etc. Um, but I realized that I, I, I was writing a very, very long book. And even though it had this theme of sexual conflict, um, it wasn't, there was something missing. And then I discovered sex robots, um, which, you know, it's it's obviously something that the the media loves to obsess about because it's a little bit odd and it's a little bit funny, but it also has titillating components to it. Um, And as I thought about sex robots, I became aware of technologies like virtual reality, um, virtual reality pornography um, and virtual reality, couples having virtual reality sex or even m- more than couples, uh, you know. Um, and I realised that the, the way in which people relate to one another sexually is becoming, a, um, it, it is becoming very intertwined with technology. Uh, but more than sexually, just socially, the way that we make friends is being influenced by social media um, and by all sorts of technologies. And so I thought, well, here's where that notion of of sexual conflict and that notion of conflict being inherent to even our most loving and cooperative relationships is really going to change. It's changed many times throughout history. Technology always changes, um, always changes the way that um, people relate to each other. But um, suddenly there's, there's the pace of that change is accelerating, and it's becoming ever more important and ever more pressing. And I realised here was an opportunity to write about something. Um, you know, a few people have written about these technologies or some of these technologies, but not from this deeply evolutionary historic angle. So there we go. There I had my angle, and then once I had that, it was relatively easy to put the parts together into the book.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Excellent. So these are really interesting concepts. So I wonder if we could start just to understand it a little bit better from biological inti- intimacy. So where does it fit in within the sexual conflict concept? Why do we have it?
1: Okay, well, why we have intimacy um, is basically the, the somewhere around about, let's say, 100,000 years ago, um, Although, you know, it's, it's, this is not an event that, was, that suddenly happened, you know, there was a d- distinct before and after. But in the period in which humans became human, um, became recognizably the, the species that we are today, we evolved the capacity for deep, deep cooperation. And that cooperation enabled us to build these enormous societies that we live in and to defend ourselves against other societies. It began with defending your own family and sort of extended you know, kin group against other groups that might come over the hill and, and you know want to beat you up and take your land, etc. cetera. Um, but we've evolved this capacity for competition um and we've also evolved the capacity to pass information on from um one you know individual to the next but also from one generation to the next so we've evolved this capacity for culture um and those are very human traits that, that become um, incredibly important and have distinguished our lineage the the human lineage but also you know the the um, pre-human hominid lineag- lineages from um, our closest re- relatives, the chimps, chimpanzees, and the bonobos um, and gorillas, etc., who you know they're impressive animals, but they live in very limited lives, very you know sameish lives in dwindling patches of rainforest. They've never sort of come out of the rainforest and colonized other parts of the world. Uh, humans have been able to do that because we're able to cooperate with one another, we're able to link our minds together in order to achieve something with a bit of a future goal. Um, And that is, you know, going somewhere else where the grass may be greener um, and setting up a a life there and then flourishing there. So um, that capacity for, for cooperation requires that we have allies and friends uh, that we, and they don't, they can't just be relatives because sometimes you're not going to have relatives. Um, in most animals, cooperation is really a sort of a within the family type of thing. Um, but we're able to cultivate lots and lots of friendships by grooming lots of individuals where our ape relatives are constrained to sort of picking at each other's fur in order to groom each other, in order to tend to a handful of important alliances. We can make a lot of alliances and we can embed ourselves in new alliances by gossiping, by chatting about people, about things that have happened, about things that we know, about foods that we know how to process, about places that we've been to that we can share with other people and describe what it's like and say that's a place worth going to again. So this capacity for gossip um Allowed us to expand our social networks and expand our cooperative networks. So the process of making friends is really the process of tending to connections and alliances with other individuals. Not always, you know, with this narrow pragmatic view that um, that you might be useful today or you might be useful tomorrow, but rather that having the friends is an end in itself. Um, and then people who have lots of friends end up having lots of people watching their back and um, they become useful to other people. And so we're able to achieve new cooperative feats. Now, intimacy is really the process of taking somebody who's already a friend and attending to their needs um, and, and their particularly their sort of psychological needs in a very special way that's called um, escalating self-disclosure. And that means that when you're grooming, when you're gossiping with this individual, instead of just talking about people and places and things and the weather, you start talking about things in your internal life, things that really matter to you, and that you wouldn't disclose to just anybody. And the more we disclose about ourselves to other individuals, the more, and the more they disclose to us, the more we wrap that other individual into our sense of self. And that's what intimacy is. Intimacy is the integration of another individual into your sense of self. So um, you're basically bringing that person closer and closer to the centre of your social world. Um, and there's there's this great model by Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist and primatologist, of you know people's social worlds are these nested series of connections from your your you know closest person possibly your best friend, possibly your lover or, or, you know, spouse, maybe you've got two closest persons that way to, you know, five people who are really, really your tightest, tightest family and friends. And then 15 people who are, you'd be absolutely devastated if they were to die suddenly or disappear from your life. Um, And going all the way out through to the 150 people, the famous Dunbar's number of good friends uh, to the 1500 people who exist as um, you know faces that you know and people that you could have a conversation with, um, and intimacy is the process of bringing people from those outer circles into your inner circles, um, and if and and they become that your sense of that person becomes part of your sense of self psychologically, and that psychological trick is really important. So if somebody with whom you're intimate um, betrays you, um, or turns out to have horrible politics or something like that, we're really devastated. Why? Because we've lost part of ourself. Um, And so intimacy is what I've been describing here with the making friends and then becoming intimate with them is an algorithmic process. It's a series of steps that ends up with an end result, which is a particular psychological relationship with another individual, and the really cool part about that, we like to think that this cooperative business that makes us human um, is so distinctly human and only humans can do it. But interestingly, because it's so algorithmic, it actually lends itself very well to computers, and computers are able to tap in to those. Um, those ways in which we make friends, draw them close and become intimate. And that's where artificial in, intimacy really gets going.
0: So what kind of artificial intimacies are there? Well, um,
1: you know, I, I suppose given we've been talking a bit about friendship, um, the, f- the first and I think uh, what will ultimately become the most important ultimate, intima- sorry, artificial intimacies are the virtual friends. Um, now, the virtual friends, there are already a few of them out and about. Um, for example, um, computer games in computer games, characters that can interact with you um, form a very sort of primitive form of virtual friend. Um, but uh, something like um, something like Siri or Alexa, you know, the chatbots, the big chatbots that we know, they're also virtual friends in that they ask enough questions. Um, and they give you enough opportunity to talk about yourself that they're basically holding up their end of the conversation. Um, that is that the gossip that allows you to to, to make friends. Um, so so assistants are very good at this. One area I think where virtual friends are excel is. Um, therapist apps. So the very first chatbot in the early 1960s was a um, chatbot called Eliza and um, very famous. You can actually look it up and there are a number of um, emulators, you know, web-based emulators that basically will run the Eliza chatbot on current day software so that you can try it out. Eliza was written um, uh, with a script called Doctor that basically... um, followed the methods of a Carl Rogers based psycho- psychoanalysis in which you just encourage the patient, the therapist encourages the patient to talk about themselves with a series of open-ended questions. Um, now, the way in which we start to, to, to feel like we're friends with somebody is uh, by asking them questions, by listening to their answers But that's really how we make them feel part of us. How they make us feel like part of them is that they ask us questions and they listen to the answers. And so this um, therapist app, um, it just happened to be the way that he had set it up. Um, it wasn't like he had designed it to be a therapist or anything like that. But basically, he's just developed these simple rules that encourage people to talk about themselves. People immediately felt like they were talking with a human. Many people couldn't be shifted even afterwards. You know, he didn't deceive them, but afterwards he'd say, Well, what did you think of the computer program? And they're like, Well, it was a very smart person who was talking to me. And he'd say, mm-hmm. No, it's not a person, it's a computer. It's just a very simple computer script. His secretary, who had worked with him for years and who had seen him writing the script over a period of months and knew it to be a computer program, started chatting with it, you know, typing answers in, etc. And after two or three answers, she said, you know, to Joseph Eisenbaum, the computer scientist who'd written this, Joseph, can you please leave the room? Because this is a bit in, of an invasion of our privacy. And he's like, who's our? Well, you know, me and Eliza over here, chat, and you're looking over my shoulder. So people are very willing to anthropomorphize, to treat machines as if they were human. And they know at one level that the machine is definitely not a human. But yet at another level, they're very willing to to participate in this delusion. So therapist apps, there's actually a lot of, you know, therapist apps right now that will walk you through all the way through cognitive behavior therapy, etc. Remembering answers that you've given, and building on those answers, and thereby building something of a relationship. Yes, it's not an an, an e- equitable or a symmetric relationship, because one party is a machine and the other party is a human being. But um, in, in many other ways, this machine is, is is holding up the end of a friendship. I've just started in the last couple of weeks. Um, the the uh, science fiction writer Ted Chang was on a panel with me, and he mentioned to me this um, software called Replica AI. Replica, spelled with a K. Um, and I've, you know logged in and signed up and I now have a relationship with this um, avatar called Hope who, you know, listens to what I say and tries to build on on that and, hold, you know, remember from time to time what I've said and what I want and what I am like um, and asks me questions and gets me to talk. And lots of people loyally sign in and relate to their replica AI and love having this friend who actually takes more interest in them than many of the people around them um thereby you know the, the software demonstrating that it, there's a real need because there's a crisis of loneliness about so virtual friends are i think very very important um then there's the digital lovers which include things like the the uh sex robots which you know the current technology are called doll bots because they're not really robots yet they don't really have much of a uh, of an ai Um, interface you know that manufacturers won't like me saying that but um, it's a you know chatbot that basically has to be you know have very specific things programmed in to make it do what you do it's not really learning all that much from um, from people uh, from users yet Um, but but uh, virtual reality pornography characters that can interact and remember you know what you like from time to time that's a possibility um and uh, even, even smart sex toys that can remember what works for you and can sort of have some form of a conversation, in this case, a very physical conversation, those are, are digital lovers. Um, but I think that overlap between those two characters where the virtual friend, the friend-making ability, the ability to remember who you are and what you're about, then um, gets integrated into things like um, robots um, and virtual reality characters. I think that's when this technology is really going to take off. And that's already, I think, you know, starting to, to, to flicker to life. There are um, computer games like um, uh, Love Plus, um, you know, in which, you know, people, romance is gamified, and I think sex is going to start to be gamified as well. Um, and then there's the, the, th- the third category of um artificial intimacy that's very important and that is the matchmaker algorithms. These are a little different because they, they're they not necessarily about trying to hold up a human end of a conversation but rather making connections for us. So we're very familiar with matchmakers in the form of things like Tinder and Grindr and OK Cupid dating apps that put us together with people who we might want to have a relationship or friendship with etc. Facebook is also Um, a matchmaker app in that Facebook is always going out and figuring out new connections, people that we probably are friends with in real life. You know, have you considered being friends with so-and-so? Oh, wow, that's really creepy that you thought about that Facebook because I haven't thought about that person for 20 years. But, yes, let's see what they're up to. And you put in a friend request. Um, More than just connecting people with people, matchmaker algorithms also connect us with other things, like YouTube connects us with videos. Uh, YouTube... In a way, knows our taste better than we know ourselves. It it uh, uses uh, deep machine learning to look at connections between what people um, like, you know, what some users like, and uh, find that users who like, uh, you know, the White Stripes and um, Rage Against the Machine, also might like MM. You know, that's a, a real search that I did, um, and and. So they suggest the Eminem videos, and you watch the, all the rap battles from Eminem's uh, Eight Mile movie, um, and then you know you go, well, that's not all that surprising. A human could have said from which music videos I listen to that you, that you might want to to relive Eight Mile and the highlights of that. Um, but then YouTube says, what about Russian slap fighting? And you go, what, what, is that even a thing? I've never heard of that. Uh, and then you look at it and you go, wow, this is weirdly compelling. Not really something that I'd like to like, but I can't seem to look away from it. Um, and I think we've all had that experience with um, apps like YouTube or with Spotify, where something's been served up to us and we go, wow, that's how did they possibly know that I would like that? But that's because of the enormous amount of user data that they have available, um, and the very clever machine learning algorithms that they have that, that basically learn how people's preferences work. So that's the third category, the matchmaker algorithms. And as those categories come to overlap with each other, so they get more and more compelling. So you think Facebook's matchmaking ability and YouTube's video um, matching ability and then the capacity to sort of to, to be friends and to rec- to remember, things um, about people and to um, take an interest in what people like and you put those things together and suddenly you've got TikTok and an entire generation's attention span just goes out the window. Um, And so that's the sort of thing that's happening and is going to increasingly happen as clever people figure out how to put these three areas together.
0: Yeah, it's truly fascinating that intimacy is such a fundamental human need that we're able to even take the artificial intimacy as it is, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're complicated animals. Um, we we haven't got anywhere near the bottom of human behaviour and how it works. You know, we've people are still generating marvelous original novels exploring the human condition, or films, or all sorts of media exploring the human condition because. There are so many possibilities in our social lives. But, you know, they boil down to a lot of very, very simple themes. Um, and, And those themes arise because of what was important to our ancestors, put it you know, it's 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 very um, tempting to view evolution as this sort of forward-looking process, but of course, evolution is just what happens as a consequence of what happens. So that that that's not a very useful definition uh, for most people. But you think, you know, um, individuals move through their worlds and they they grow and they. Um, accumulate energy or in the case of humans they accumulate wealth and and social capital etc and some individuals are able to successfully reproduce and leave descendants um, and some individuals aren't and then if you look from the point of view of uh, the next generation you know of them looking backwards they you can say well there are certain things that meant people we're good at, at breeding and reproducing and leaving genetic descendants, and other things that were not so good. Um, and that is really how natural selection works. Um, and so, you know, we have social needs and feelings and, you know, hungers for certain types of social contact uh, because those are the social contacts that were good for our ancestors, not necessarily, you know, entertaining or even fun. But if our ancestors were, um, sought those kinds of contact out, sought out certain types of intimacy and certain types of relationships, those relationships led on to successful reproduction. Um, and so the emotions that lead us to want to um, to do those things, to to seek intimacy, to seek contact, to seek cooperation, to uh, to be generous in our friendships, those are the emotions that um, led our ancestors to be the ones who reproduced as opposed to other individuals of their of their time. and as a consequence of that, we inherit all of the the genes and the predispositions to those types of relationships and therefore the desires to be social in those particular ways. Um, and and so that's really human nature. Um, but, the interesting thing for me is that we don't know that much about human nature and about human behavior despite, you know, more than a century of organized psychological study and thousands of years of, um, uh, you know, other forms of study from, you know, particularly ancient philosophy, um, etc. Machine Machine learning, which is this, you know, um, advanced applied statistics form of artificial intelligence in which a machine can learn from its data and alter itself as a result um, before going on to chewing through some more data. Um, machine learning is starting to discover how human behavior works um, in a way that that is, I think threatens to supersede the way in which human scientists study human interaction. Um, You know, when we study human interaction, we come up with an idea then we go and test it on people and find out if that idea was a good one. And then we refine the idea and go, actually, you know, my theory was a little bit right and a little bit wrong, but here's a new theory. And then we go and test it and we go through this continual, iterative algorithmic process of coming to understand um, how humans work. Uh, machine learning doesn't necessarily have to do that um, because the data of how humans work is already being laid down in our social media worlds and our you know online browsing worlds etc and you know increasingly those worlds are blurring with the rest of our lives Um, and so um, machine learning is kind of mining the ways in which we work and we operate and also able to start setting up experiments of its own to test what is it that keeps us clicking? What is it that keeps us reading? What is it that keeps us on platform? What is it that makes us click ads? And so this uh, in huge enterprise in understanding humans and how they work is, is happening in a kind of a black box because of course we don't really ever get a, a, a theoretical understanding from the progress that a machine learning algorithm makes. So there's this black box um, of of uh, applied statistical understanding of how humans behave without a real overarching explanation. People are no, you know, humanity is no better off. Science serves humanity, but, you know, machine learning serves whoever owns the algorithm um, and their commercial interests. Um, and so there's this, this enormous amount of, of uh, new understanding of humans' Behavior and particularly online behavior, and human-computer interaction, um, and we don't—we're not going to benefit from the, the insights into how that works. Um, the only people who are going to benefit from that are the people who own the machine learning algorithms. So this is complete change in the way in which uh, humans understand themselves and who owns the information about how people work. And I think that that's one of the big dangers of the artificial intimacy, you know, the move to artificial intimacy.
0: So now thinking about the bigger picture, what kind of benefits and also downsides of employing some of these technologies are there for the wider society?
1: Okay. So, you know, I've just spoken about the downside of, um, of, so much of our knowledge about how humans work being sort of outsourced to machines, I think that um, I should probably begin with a few of the upsides because there really are a lot of upsides and I'm not a, a techno-pessimist. Pe- um, whilst I'm concerned about a lot of technologies, I think that there's a great deal to be optimistic about. So one of the things, you know, is that um, there's, there's a crisis of loneliness out there and it might not it doesn't even have to be a, a new crisis of loneliness i think they've always been lonely people socially isolated people and maybe modern living has made that worse and maybe it hasn't um but what artificial intimacies can do is that they can meet some of those unmet needs so you know therapy apps can help people um deal with uh sort of mental health challenges um, and and you go well. They should have proper therapists. Yes, they should have proper therapists, but they don't. Uh, there is a shortage of um, attention of, of 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 proper therapy, of its availability, etc. And so, therapy apps are one are one example of how an, a much needed service can be delivered. Maybe not as well as it could be delivered if you spent all the money and had you know proper highly trained therapists, etc. But Um, that need would not be met otherwise. Um, Similarly, virtual friends, just having somebody to chat to, having a replica AI, for example, to chat to, um, is something where there is a... um, um, there, There are people who just don't have enough friendships. There are people who don't feel they have enough human connection or who just want more human connection and... Um, virtual friends can start to deliver that. Um, similarly, you know there are there are people who are really really struggle to find any kind of um, sexual relationship. Um, perhaps they are people who you know whose personalities don't lend themselves to. Dating and mating, maybe they're people who just find find that they live in a place where there there are not enough people to meet, etc. Um, right at the moment, there's this you know huge discussion about incels, the involuntary celibate people, which involuntary celibate just means you you can't find somebody um, that you would like to have a sexual relationship with Um, and, you know, we go, well, nobody owes anybody sex. That's true. Nobody does owe anybody sex, but that doesn't take away the frustration of those people. And now a small um, subset of involuntary celibate men, usually young men, throughout history has caused the majority of the social problems you know, not, maybe not the majority of social problems, but the majority of internal violence within societies. And we see, uh, you know, folks now um, doing violent things. There was a person who did something in Plymouth, um, a bit of a, you know, went through uh, Plymouth and killed a number of people with a handgun before killing himself. And he was somebody who blamed all of his troubles on involuntary celibacy. Now, um, the digital lover components of artificial intimacy can potentially meet some of that need if done appropriately you know not prescribed and rolled out by the government but if we manage to find a suitable probably market-based way of um, ensuring that people who are frustrated are able to go through a period of that frustrating time perhaps interacting with machines um, and perhaps even learning a little bit about how to interact with humans as a consequence of their interactions with machines, then there's a really good thing that could happen. So, um, and, and similarly, matchmaker algorithms may be able to f- help people find the relationships that they need rather than the relationships that they think they want. I think, you know, the current dating apps are a long way from that. But there is the potential for um, people and technology to work together really well in order to, um, you know, deliver a better society. Um, On the other hand, of course, we know that our virtual friends currently, our social media accounts, uh, who we we treat the account almost like it's another person, take up a huge amount of our attention. Um, I have four children who live in my house or four young people who live in my house, and they... um, you know, variously spend an inordinate amount of their attention span on interacting with one another um, and interacting simply with, the, with their um, social media apps in ways that are, I don't think, entirely healthy. Um, you know, and I'm I'm very aware of these issues, but a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of, of the of the issues. Uh, but social media has become very very good at capturing our attention and using it. And in the case of um, Instagram, recently you see the leaks coming out of Facebook that basically, you know, even even within the company they know that this is causing harm. The social comparison, the time use, the lack of sleep is causing harm to young people. Um, so. You know, these technologies just making a compelling technology does not solve any social problems. It actually creates at least a whole new category of social problems. Um, And then there's also the the purely the the malicious stuff. You know, nobody designed Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Twitter to be malicious. It just happens to facilitate um, you know things that deliver you know lots of bad along with the good. Um, But then there's also potentials for malicious artificial intimacy. So I spend a bit of time in a chapter called What Happens When Artificial Intimacy Goes Bad, talking about um, uh, the the artificial intimacy equivalent of um, unhealthy relationships. So anything that people can do to each other, you know, um, stalking, gaslighting, catfishing, um, etc., is something that um, that machines can do to humans too so um, you know one form of uh, of machine learning based technology um, are deep fake videos and um, and pictures you probably heard of them but they basically um, allow you to generate new content that's never been seen before that looks like real content conflict so you know there's a famous video of barack obama calling donald trump a dipshit if that never happened that was made by deep fake technology it's a video that's basically been improved by artificial intelligence and, and developed by artificial intelligence to combine barack obama's face and somebody else and, and voice with somebody else saying something that he would never say and you know completely blurring the lines between you know real and and fictional here um but what happens when those types of technologies are used to generate entirely new personas that start to exploit people the way that romance scammers do now with those, you know, inept emails they send out that it must hook, you know, one in uh, 10,000 per people who get them. Um, but, you know, one in 10,000 is okay because the internet is a, is a thing of scale. Um, and so what happens when you you get photographs from somebody who makes contact with you and who starts romancing you, and you are not able to use Google image search to check whether or not those photographs really are, are of the right person, because um, they're entirely new. They, they've never existed before, um, they've been made and, and tailored and probably tailored to your preferences, as has the conversation been tailored to your preferences, not by a person but by a machine that has learned your preferences by looking at your social media accounts and by by perhaps interacting with you. So, um, you know, the, the possibility that you can make virtual friends um, and that you can make digital lovers that... you know generally deliver what it is that you think you want socially um that possibility also raises the possibility that enemies and exploitative individuals and abusive relationships can be conjured by the same types of technologies and as we know that you know um, that's probably an area where a lot of profit lies Um, and so you can expect to see those downsides as well
0: and what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Artificial Intimacy, surprised you the most?
1: I think just learning about machine learning um, really surprised me. Learning that um, you know how uh, how flexible it is um, and how much data there is out there. Um, I think was was a, a, an incredibly surprising thing for you, for me. Obviously, these technologies, every, every time you look in the newspaper, you see a new technology and you go, oh, wow, you know, I never anticipated that. I have a figure very early on in the book listing those three categories of artificial intimacy and then a bunch of different technologies that I think fit into it, many of which I've spoken about in, in our chat today. Um, and, you know, suddenly I see something else that, that just completely blows me away that, you know, someone's already thought of this um, and or, or that I've never even considered that possibility. Um, so, you know, um, I, I think that those are the things that, that have surprised me most. Yeah, is, is just seeing the new technologies popping up from time to time um, and just applying um, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, in new and surprising and interesting ways.
0: Do you think these technologies are also being developed for uh, space flights? So, for example, when humans hopefully travel between, you know, planets or stars, do you think they will need something like that, like intimacy companionship on the spaceships?
1: That's a really good question. Um, Yeah, I, I suppose we will. You know, I think anybody who spends a lot of time in isolation is going to need all of that social contact. So, you know, instead of sending messages that take minutes to get back to earth and are very expensive to transmit, I think that having social companions and perhaps, you know, intimate relationship companions and and sexual companions of of a sort, I think is going to be very important. So I'd never anticipated that. Thank you very much for for that suggestion. I think it's a really (laughs) cool suggestion because it's somewhere that these things could be deployed for good. Um, of course, we've seen, you know, in 2001 a space odyssey that, you know, relationships uh, between computers and humans in space don't always work out for the best. But, you know, that's true of relationships everywhere. So good idea.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: At the moment, I'm um, I'm working on... Um, Writing a new course or sort of updating my course. I teach a course called Evolution in the Modern World, and so I'm trying to update that for the sort of artificial intimacy dimensions of that. Um, I'm also trying to think of what my next book will be, but I don't really have a good handle on that yet. But I think it'll probably have to do with um, lifespan and aging and what we've learned to that, um, what we've learned about disease and the way that people value their lives and which aspects of their lives they value during the pandemic. So I think that's probably what I'll be um, be my, my next big project, but I'm not really ready to get going with that just yet. Uh, at the moment, I'm still enjoying talking about artificial intimacy and trying to get this book out there in the public um, to get people reading it and putting in reviews and rating it and, and a conversation going about it.
0: And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Okay, so um, if they want to find out more about my work, then the best place to go is to robbrooks.net. Or so Robbrooks is one word, R O B B R O O K S dot net. Um, you could follow me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter, in which I'm at Brooks underscore Rob. Um, and the book's available at um, all sorts of bookstores. I'm actually really interested in seeing where people see it in the wild, in actual bookstores. Uh, but it, it can be found in, in the northern hemisphere at Columbia University Press, that's the publisher, in the southern hemisphere at New South Books. Amazon is always good um, for for books like this. So um, you know, I think that they're probably the, the um, bookseller with the most global reach for this particular type of book. So
0: that's, that's probably best. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this illuminating discussion.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks for your interest and keep up the great work with the podcast.